0: and welcome to philosophy with Will Anderson I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, joining me today A man who I consider a friend. Uh, We'll find out, I guess. We'll find out in this podcast whether we are indeed friends or not. But a man who I consider to be a friend of mine, so very uh, pleased to have him on the podcast. Uh, This is how the podcast starts. I ask the guests who they are.
1: Mm -hmm. Who are you? I am Harley Breen, Uh, and I
0: am your friend. Okay, good. Nice.
1: I I would regard you as a friend. I was asked that uh, about this podcast uh, by uh, a publicist, saying, are you friends with Will? I'm like, yeah, I'm friends with Will.
0: Oh, good. I'm glad that we both... (laughs) <laughs> we both went with that as an automatic reaction yeah.
1: um, we had enough beers with each other to, exactly. be, to be mates and yeah
0: the beers that's yeah. right we'll yeah. say beers yeah <laughs> This is, yeah. this is what we'll say for the sake yeah. of the podcast yeah. while you're promoting your television show. Beer was the prelude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, it's nice to have you here, mate. I really appreciate you doing the podcast. Um, you've got a new TV show. Mm. Well, well, you did this thing called Pilot Week at Channel 10, right? That's it was, right this yeah. was It was part of that originally, and they kind of did a, a pilot episode for a whole bunch of different projects and then decided which of the projects they might pick up and go to series. And you did one for a show that, it's rare that I watch a television program and think, oh, wow. Like, I wish I wish I could have done that. You know, like, I, I'm not one of those people. I, I like watching other people and I'm very able to enjoy watching them do their work without ever thinking, oh, I wish I was hosting Rove or I wish I was like one of the team captains on, you know, have you been paying attention or I'm whatever. I'm a bit like that myself. Yeah. yeah. I, I enjoy watching other people do what they do. Yeah. Your show was the first one in a long time where I was like, I loved watching it, but I also at the same time was like, oh, it would have been really interesting to to be you in this situation. So before we get into the, the, the normal gist of the podcast, tell people a little bit about what the show is. Sure.
1: And, and I, I kind of look at the show in a similar way. Where I look at it and go, man, I wish I came up with this idea. Yeah, That's, it's the only thing I don't like about it is that it's not actually <laughs> yeah. my idea. Because it's
0: an international idea. isn't It, it? comes
1: out of Belgium. Yes. Um, uh, a comedian over there named Philippe, and I really should just get his last name. Uh, he's quite he's quite famous uh, in Belgium, and mm-hmm. he he came up with this concept of taboo. And then uh, the production does company, sound
0: like an insult, though, doesn't it? Famous in Belgium. Yeah, it sounds like something <laughs> they'd say about David Hasselhoff or something. Yeah, you know, right. he's really big in Belgium. <laughs>
1: Well, I think he is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was uh, uh, approached by Loon Media, who are the production company, to see if I'd be interested. And in. they showed me the opening couple of minutes of, of uh, the episode for Terminal Illness out of Belgium. And I just went, oh, absolutely, I'm in. And so the, the concept of the show is that I go on a holiday with four people from a marginalised minority. Uh, and 85% of the show is that holiday, is the footage from that. And it is classed as a documentary. It's not in the, in the category of comedy. And then 15% of the show, and I hear their stories and you see their sort of the trials on the particular subject that we're talking about, and then 15% of the show is the stand-up comedy that I write about their particular stories and that I perform in front of them them and their friends and family and a bigger audience.
0: So tell us, um, initially, what was the first episode?
1: First episode was physical disability.
0: Okay, so we put a pin in that, we'll come back because yes. I want to talk to you about the process of making the show and, and sure. how, how it all works and yeah the challenges that might come with that and the adventures that you have. Um, what are the ones that you are doing in this series that is coming to channel 10?
1: So disability will come back, uh-huh. um, as a part of the, it's a four part series. So the pilot, uh, which has been uh, nominated for a, a Logie. I saw that. Amazing. Congratulations. First show I've ever done. <laughs> and then straight into one for uh, one, mate. A, a one for one, buddy. Yeah. that's how you do it. Just wait 19 years, get in, get a show, get do a you, Logie. Do you
0: know what you're up against?
1: Uh, I should, but we're in the category of uh, Outstanding Documentary. Okay. Um, so that- What I love
0: in, in that, it, there'll be something probably from the ABC, some very yes. serious documentary, yeah, and then there'll be like Australia's Got Talent or something because the categories <laughs> that the
1: Logies make no fucking sense at all. <laughs> I think my my one is like five of us, we're yep. all sort of on brand documentary, okay. kind of real life story kind of thing. Okay, well, that's good. Um, yeah, so that, that one will be a part of it. And then the three new ones that I've just finished filming are Terminal Illness, mm. um, Racism. Uh, which is particularly focused on uh, four individuals from different cultural backgrounds that have uh, suffered at the hands of extreme bigotry or racism, uh, and mental illness, which I- I- in comparison to the other three, I was like, oh, I've got that one. That's fine.
0: Uh, because well, I'm a comedian. Yeah, you've dealt with that a little bit more up close. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Like, uh, one of the things I said, in it: if, if you're a um, comedian and you don't have a mental illness, uh, get the fuck out. What are you doing here? Uh, look Am I allowed to swear on this? You, Great What do you think? <laughs> I didn't know yeah, Yes, you're allowed to swear
0: Because I did Just because we're uh, actually recording this at a radio station the, well,
1: that's that, Yeah, we're not meant to be here I was just waiting for yeah. somebody to hit the dump button This then. is <laughs> a
0: this is a non-sanctioned radio Great. station Great. Uh, We've we, we snuck into the back of the yeah. place where my day job is yep. And they know we're here yep. But they kind of ignore it because I work for them as my day job yep. So they put up with the fact that we've got this little meth lab out the back It's a podcast with funding on the business, exactly. But no rules. You can say whatever you like right. on the podcast. So, And this show, again, it's it's one of those things where the exciting thing about it is that, yeah, it's called Taboo and it really, people would have even just heard those four topics, those four categories and, and thought, how can you even make television shows around these areas?
1: Absolutely. You horrible person. Yeah. Why would you do that? And I think because people associate, and I, I think wrongly, associate stand-up comedy with uh um, belittling and bullying and and that's not how it's been for me so uh, I don't see that's how it's been for you it's not how it is for a lot of stand-up comics it's more of a uh, an observation of things around you and trying to find the absurd and funny side of those things so I kind of see all those topics as absolutely worthy of being involved in in comedy uh, so so one of them's been to
0: air so we can talk about that the yes, pilot episodes yes. already been to air so yep. I, I'd rather us talk about the details of that one more than we talk about the details of the other ones sure. because I want to, I think part of the joy of this show is also the surprise of seeing how it unfolds. Yeah, you know, yeah he, absolutely. And so, but tell, I, I, cause the pilot is obviously the first one that you did. Yeah. Uh, you must've had trepidation about, you know, throwing yourself into, well, no, I'm not going to put the words in your mouth. You tell me
1: what it was like to start on this project. Well, sort of to add to it, um, uh, when I found out that I was going to be on the project doing it, uh, I had also just found out that I was going to Russia for the World Cup um, as a part of the Socceroo's campaign. I was filming um, social media content uh, over in Russia. So I was there for three weeks and then I came home and I had two days off before I started filming um, Taboo. So I kind of, my head didn't really have a chance to get too into what the process was going to be because I was so distracted by a completely different job. Um, uh, do you
0: think that was a good thing or a bad thing?
1: I think it was an exceptional thing. Okay. Um, maybe I would have liked slightly more preparation, but I think it would have skewed the way I did it. I just went in with a real blank canvas. Um, and of course I was totally, um, um nervous is the right word about whether I was uh, capable of even sitting down and doing the one-on-one interviews with them. And so it's, it's uh, I'm, I'm not a. TV guy, I haven't had my own TV show before, I haven't done those sorts of on-camera interviews, whether or not um, we would uh, have a connection, the four of us, because that's really important for for that side of the, the filming. Uh, and then, of course, whether or not I could possibly write jokes about these four individuals that, have, that all faced really horrible situations that have changed their lives, certainly physically and, and in every other way.
0: So... Uh, I was going to say walk me through it, but that's probably
1: a bad choice of language in, in this scenario. <laughs> no, it was one of the jokes I yeah. did uh, on the show. I was like, I of all the ramps everywhere. I yep. was like, my knees work. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: they, do these people know, because again, even for them, like, you know, once you've done a pilot... You know, you could show the people in the next ones, here's how we did the last one, here's how it's handled. They kind of know what they're signing up for. But in the first one, they're taking a bit of a risk themselves to be involved in this project.
1: Yeah, they really came in with no real context to uh, what the end product was going to be, but they were told as as much detail as possible. um, And they were sent sort of, you know, footage of me and and the kinds of stand-up that I do, which is all very blue and naughty kind of naughty schoolboy kind of comedies, uh, sometimes how I describe myself. Um, and yeah, so they, they really had to give us a lot of trust and have a lot of faith in the process and they all did. And it was, it was a, it was a testament to the casting, I think of the four people that were found.
0: Uh, it was absolutely compelling TV. Uh, I am interested in, I guess, firstly, what were the challenges? What did you see as the challenges of making the the program? What was the hardest thing about making it?
1: Um, Being truthful to somebody else's story was absolutely the biggest challenge. I I wanted um, everything that I did to champion their story. Um, And there was elements of their story that, you know, were um, confronting and challenging and and, uh, I wanted to do the best by them. So, um, but they were all four of them were so open and giving with their stories that um, became not a challenge very quickly. Uh,
0: and what did you learn out of the experience that perhaps you didn't know going
1: into it? Um, I don't, I think I had something, um, reconfirmed is that, that every single person has an epic story in them regardless. Like you pick anyone out on the street, you, you just to take any person aside and hear their story, you could make a feature film out of them. Um, and all four of those confirmed that. And it'd that, be great if that was the final episode.
0: Yeah, we like we've got. Look, here's what we've done. Uh, we've got uh, mental illness, terminal illness, uh, severe disability, and just four boring fucks. This will be the real <laughs> challenge. We found four really boring people who don't think yep. they have a story. Yeah. See how good you are now,
1: yep. Brain. <laughs> Let's see. Where's your story? Dig deep. Show it to me, and you'll find out they've probably got a really epic story. So. Um, um, I also, I think I learned how to just sit and listen because, um, uh, one of the things in the one-on-one interviews, um, uh, it's really just my job to facilitate their story so that we can hear it in a, a really clearly and in its entirety. Uh, and I actively listen. So when people talk, I go, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's really hard to edit for the editor yeah. because they've just got a shot of the person telling the story and you can just hear me going, oh Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to stop that. I got some um, feedback from the producer. Just got to pull that back, which means when you don't make those noises, all you're doing is looking and focused and listening and you really listen. And it was weird. I started that by saying I'm an active listener, but maybe active listening is just stay quiet, stay still and hear that story. And you, you really hear people.
0: It, do you think that you are an active listener in general? Like in real life, are you an active listener? I mean, people talk about that cliche of your comedians, and I think it is a cliche, but that idea that I think sometimes if you certainly have a group of comedians together in the right environment, it's less about listening to what the other person is saying and waiting for an opportunity for you to have your, your say. Absolutely, you know? yeah. And so do you feel like in your real life, what sort of listener are you in your real life?
1: I think my wife and children would tell you that I don't listen very well. I um, my, I, I don't know about you, but my head is busy all the time. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff going on. And so uh, I have to uh, really make a conscious effort, um, to, especially with my eldest child who's about to turn nine, to when he's telling me a story, to put all of the stuff, put the phone away, put pens and paper away, try and get the head straight into his story. Because a lot of times, no, I'm not. I'm in my own head uh, I'm not listening to anything that's going on. I mean, even now, as we're talking, my head's got other things happening for what the day is. Or, or well, but, on. but
0: also, of course it does. I mean, yeah. that's how you are able to do the job that you do for a living is because that, you know, an idea sparks a whole bunch of other ideas and you can think about things at the same time. Like the capacity to do stand-up comedy, for example, is a – Yeah, you are saying the words on stage, but you're also making a series of decisions and assessments about what to do next and how the crowd are reacting. And is that light working and is the microphone a little bit crunkly or should I put the stand over there or why is that guy down the front distracted (laughs) all of a sudden? And why am I distracted by the guy down the front being distracted? Uh, Do you watch Game of Thrones?
1: Uh, I watched like the first two seasons. Okay, so there's
0: this character called Bran. This is no spoilers. Don't worry, people. But he's uh, well, I guess spoilers if you've never watched it. Okay. But you know, but
1: you should have got around to it yeah, by now, exactly. Yeah. But he
0: he uh, he becomes this character called you know, the three eyed raven, and he essentially his eyes will go blank, and he goes off to another place to sort of astral travel or whatever's going on. Right? Often, I have to stop myself from doing that, right? Because you start to have a thought about some idea or something that's happening and then it starts to flesh itself out and then your comedian brain is suddenly off on its own adventure and you realise that someone else is still talking to you and you're like, ah... I've lost all track of this. I'm thinking about the three eyed rave.
1: <laughs> well, it happens to me on my own podcast, what I do with my best friend, um, uh, Wade, who who is a dad, and we do, shitting with the door. Open. That's it. And um, and he talks. He says, "I have great joy in just watching your eyes glaze over, and you'll just stare out the door for a bit, I'm like, oh yeah, I had other things happening yeah. in my head. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a challenge."
0: Yeah, it is funny too because often thinking is the most important part of being a comedian and yet it's the one that looks least like working.
1: Yeah. Well, the writing process, I always say that like the start of the writing process, if if you're trying to get up a a new hour solo, for instance, um, usually that's like a two, three month period of going to a cafe or a bar with, with the notebook and pen in my hand and just sitting and just staring. And that can take, you know, two, three months. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's crunch time. You better get some work done and you have to force the writing. But yeah, but most of the writing is, is just sitting and being still.
0: Well, and so often for me, like, you know, I might sit in front of a computer or like down at a desk or whatever, but then it's the, the 10 or 15 minutes afterwards where I'm like just suddenly standing in line for a coffee or whatever and my brain starts to jiggle it all together and then suddenly I'm three-eyed ravening it again. (laughs) My eyes have gone blank and somebody's asking me what coffee I want and I'm not answering because I've suddenly worked out how that routine should work in my head. I'll have the raven, thanks. Yeah, raven. what? Double strength raven. (laughs) (laughs) So if that's how you put together an hour of stand-up, and I'm going to cleverly link it back to your television show, because so you do all this these conversations you know, yep. with the people who are going to be on the show, but then you are going to put together a, a stand-up routine, which on the show runs for how, how much material do they put eight, on the eight show? Eight
1: minutes is what the 15% equates to.
0: And uh, how long do you actually film? Is that a thing we can talk about? Yeah. Yeah. yeah how, how, how much do you actually film to get that eight minutes? Uh,
1: so I, on, all, on all four, I did about an hour show and I would say roughly on all four, I did about 30 to 40, Forty minutes of on-brand okay, gear. Yeah. So in the on the night, the audience that we're in, I wanted to give them a great stand-up show because it's my first love. Anyway, so I want them to have a great live show, and you know, as you can tell by the subject matter, some of the material gets a mm. bit heavy, yeah. and some of it's just not. Fit yet? Yeah, not and
0: not not good to open with. No, you know, sometimes good just to <laughs> yeah. warm them up a little yeah, before yeah. we totally. Anyway,
1: so your loved ones are dying, so we're <laughs> going to get to that in a minute. But that's right, and you need to give them yeah. literally some comic relief yeah. from the comedy. Yeah. Uh, and the the difference though is, so I would say roughly four to six months to write a, an hour solo show, and, and on on taboo I had roughly three weeks from point of holiday to delivering the stand up, which is just in, in every way not enough time. But it's amazing what you do when you have a timeline and a schedule to sort of get that stuff up. And the the main thing that it's missing is the chance to run it in and run it in to get it really Mm. red hot. How do you run this gear in? Like I tried to, I'd go to um, open mic nights. Mm. And But I'd have to set the scene, explain, give the context, say all the names of the participants, mm. all their individual situations. Then, then try the jokes. And then the light would be on
0: at the back. Yeah, exactly. You go, I've only got a minute and a half yeah, left. Yeah.
1: And then you're doing the jokes and people are like, you're lying. That's mm. not true. You're right. there's, you're just paying out on people with physical disability. And so uh, it, it became a really hard thing to trial. I think I've got it slightly better now where I just put on my own trial shows, not at open mic nights, so that I had my own audience that I could spend – sort of 10 minutes at the top. And people who know,
0: at least partly, you and
1: yes. and what they've got themselves in for. Yeah.
0: I'm interested in that, though, because it it, it occurs to me um, that often uh, the person who, in the situation you're talking about, the person who's decided to go on a TV show and share their life and share their stories, they know what they're in for. Yes. They're not the ones who you have to worry about being offended no. by what you're doing.
1: No, it's their mums and dads. Yeah and and I and I talked to that um, in a couple of the episodes it's it, because I I already have their consent I've got to know them I, I'd challenge anyone to go away for 5 days with any small group of people and not bond and get to know each other and form lasting friendships so that was a given and fine but then you you factor in their loved ones um, that uh, are dealing with it on a different timeline to what the individual's dealing with, their own sort of trauma or heartache or whatever it is. Uh, and then you put them in a room with me. They've never met me. They meet me like a, a couple of minutes before we start in the green room. And and I make a point of shaking mums and dads' hands and all that, you know, partners, husbands and wives. And they go, good to meet you. I'm like, well, we'll see how you feel about that <laughs> after the stand-up. <laughs> And they're the ones that really, cause I know the four and in, in, in all four of the episodes, all four of the participants, oh, are. I, I know that you're going to be fine with this or I certainly hope so. And if, and if the joke falls flat, I know that you'll forgive me for it. Cause you know, the challenges, whereas the, the family members, you're like, oh, you might throw a chair mm. that could happen.
0: Has there been like a, a a reaction so negative that, you know, it's been yeah c- confrontational in that way?
1: No, I I know that there definitely no confrontation whatsoever. I I know there was some, um, it's just inevitable because of the subject matter we talked talked about that there were family members that struggled, um, even with the idea of making it funny. Mm. Um, for instance, Qua in the disability episode is the double amputee, lost both his legs in a high speed motor vehicle accident. Um, is a Vietnamese guy and his parents. Um, Immigrated here from Vietnam, so they don't speak uh, English, not their first language. And their little boy lost both his legs. And here's this guy they can't really understand anyway, making jokes about that. And I know that that was a struggle for them, but I also know um, from Kwa that they enjoyed him being shown in such a great light, in such a positive way. But I I was looking at their faces as I'm doing jokes about Kwa, like it looks like you forgot leg day. (laughs) Because he, he owns a gym. Yeah. Uh, owns I, a gym. Really? Yeah. That's right. I remember that now. <laughs> and <laughs> it's a wonderful joke. <laughs> and just watching their faces going, what are you uh, doing? Ah, <laughs> man.
0: I had absolutely forgotten that. Uh, it, 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 well, I, that's the other thing I would say about this show is that, and uh, probably one of the reasons why, including the pilot back in this series, is that there's quite a lot going on. Like yeah. the shows themselves are there's a lot of depth, like they would reward rewatching because so much of when you're watching it the first time, you're being carried along by learning the stories and the sort of heightened drama of how the gig's going to go and what the jokes yes, are going to be yes. that you – Probably actually benefit from like being able to watch the show again, and with the relief of knowing how it ends. Yes. To then be absolutely. able to go back and go, yeah. okay, this
1: you know I can relax into this a little bit more. And I feel like that would probably change the experience for mm. people as well, because you you take some of the tension out. Yeah. You're like it does pay off, so that's okay. And each one of, of the individuals, like I said before, they could have they could have held the show on their own. Their story could have been one episode, and so there is a heap in it. You you hear about. Kwa situation is so completely different to Jace's situation, who's the, the young bloke that just turned up at a trampolining centre at the on uh, a uh, uh, last minute decision, jumped off a trampoline, did two flips, landed in the foam pit, now can't operate anything from the sternum down. What? And it, you know, and then there was they were comparing themselves to each other, and and each one would say, oh you've got it worse than me, and they're like, no, but you've got to deal with this. Oh no, but you have to, you know, because in in a lot of ways. Um, it was another one of the jokes I said. I think it's funny that the only guy with um, out any legs is the only one that can walk. So Kwa was actually more able bodied. So we'd get to a situation with steps; it wasn't a problem with Kwa. He could he could get up there, but the other three because they were in chairs, we you know we'd have to try and negotiate and figure that out. So yeah, there was.
0: Of the four topics, which one did you find most difficult
1: to racism? Um, yeah, of, of course, so... because for the very simple reason, mental illness. Um, disability and terminal illness could easily happen to me. I mean, mental illness, you know, Mm. I've, I've had my own history with that. Um, could easily be diagnosed with a terminal illness, um, or, or get into a horrible accident and be physically disabled. I can't change my race. I can't know what it's like to walk around, uh, with a hijab on and just be, had stuff yelled at you simply because of what you're wearing or walk around because you're from South Sudan and and um, be told to go back to where you come from where well, you can't go back because it's a war-torn country and that's why you had to leave. So that was a real struggle on how to be really respectful to that story um, from a position um, of, of privilege and power that they've copped most of the bigotry from, has come from people who sit in my categories, straight right. white males.
0: People who look like
1: you. People who look like me. Yeah. It was like I walked into the room and they all, <laughs> they all had triggers. There was a trigger warning as I walk in. They're all flaring up. Their PTSD is like,
0: ah, he's here. It's all right, mate. We've actually seen a lot of blokes like you uh, make jokes about people like us. <laughs> exactly. Out of car windows, and in the street, at the pub. That's right. And most
1: North Queensland comedy rooms. <laughs> yeah. And I'm from central Queensland. <laughs> and like, central though, mate. Not north. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fine. And there's, look, there's no one, there's no big list of jokes about people with a terminal illness. Mm. You don't hear those no. n- knocking around a party or in a, in a beer garden. Whereas there's endless lists of, uh, of uh, jokes that are based in racism and bigotry. And so that, that was a challenge just to hear their story and try and write something about their individual experience and not talk to the broader subject. Because so one of the guys is Indigenous, Aaron from um, up in Queensland. I couldn't talk. Well, I could have, but I chose not to talk broadly about uh, Indigenous issues in Australia. I, st- I just spoke about Aaron's issue yep. of being Indigenous in Australia, and which made it slightly easier because I'm only talking about him. Well, also, if you're
0: doing racism, you can't talk about all Indigenous racism and then all you know anti-Islamic no yeah you know, racism and no. then you know like I mean that could be a forever show. Well, I mean that's a lot of series, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, in yeah. fact, I think we burnt racism in one episode, guys. Yeah. I yeah. reckon this could have been like 20 episodes on yeah. racism. We we should do this you know chop this one up, guys. Just change the name from taboo to racism. Uh, so Oh, well, it's absolutely fascinating, mate. And so it's all done now. Those four episodes, are like, well, all one was already done, but the other three are all The other three done. are
1: all done and, and almost all, I think, edited. Um, uh, and, yeah, they're all set to go uh, June 13 is when um, the first episode kicks off.
0: Uh, very excited. Very excited to see it. I think it's um, the sort of television that, you know, it's just really adventurous and it's really challenging and it's super entertaining and it's just the sort of stuff that I absolutely love and despair that the world doesn't actually make too much of anymore. So, you know, you're I think right. Thanks, you should man. be very proud of it. And I hope Thank that you. people watch it and support it. And if you're not a person, if you're in Australia, not in Australia and you're listening to this, then, um, find some way to watch <laughs> yeah. it. I'm not yeah. going to tell you how,
1: but um, I'm sure there is. Get past those country blockers. Yeah. It's yeah. fine guys. Yeah.
0: You'll, you'll find a way. You understand how <laughs> these things work. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, that's the show. Uh, Now, this podcast is called Philosophy. And what I do, Harley, is I ask people if they have a philosophy towards something. It can be life, love, parenting, doesn't Mm -hmm. matter really what it is. It's just I like to know if you have some sort of, you know, uh, saying, some thought, some idea that you, you know, channel, you know, the way that you live your life through. Is there one that occurs
1: to you? Uh, It actually points, but I, I, I haven't managed to get it into as succinct words as I got it into for taboo. Uh, but I I have tried to approach life with this um, and certainly approach my career with this. And it's that not everything is funny, but there is funny in everything.
0: I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's actually very good.
1: It's a line that should make it in one of the episodes. And it was to to let the audience know, in no way do I think that all these situations are funny and that life should be funny all the time because it can't be. In fact, funny comes because life needs it. Uh, but I absolutely believe that every single situation that can possibly happen, there's got to be some funny hidden in it somewhere.
0: It's, or laughter even sometimes in, in some ways is, and I guess laughter is different to funny sometimes as well, yes. right? Yeah. Like sometimes things are funny and sometimes laugh you laugh even when they're not funny. Sometimes things can be so terrible or the situation can be so awkward and terrible that, Laughter is almost the only human response well, I, to I feel, that situation.
1: I feel like it's an evolutionary thing to help you cope. Because if, if you, like, you know, the saying if you don't laugh, you cry. It's like there's moments where you just, I've got to release this in a in a noise. <laughs> and it just comes out. Um, yeah, and I in my house, we uh, we try and have a real attitude of silliness in the house. Things can get pretty tense and stressful with small children and, schedules of a touring comic and and all of that and then try and find silliness in the house let the two-year-old take the lead on that one
0: so i'm interested in that because I, i love that idea and i wonder if being a person who doesn't have kids you know i wonder sometimes that maybe having a kid reconnects you with that idea of you know silliness for the sake of silliness or doing something that has no point other than doing the thing you know and i do wonder sometimes that you know, uh, I don't really feel like I've missed a lot not having kids. No, but, I don't think you have either. But <laughs> <laughs> but I do often l- look at the silliness that it reintroduces into my friends' lives and that reminder that life, you know, when you take life seriously, you're the idiot. Yes, you know?
1: absolutely. When you let it be silly, and I don't think it's a natural thing that happens being a parent, you all of a sudden opened up to silliness. No. It's a real conscious effort for me.
0: Well, I think that's even more why I admire it because I think that not everybody embraces it. You know, like often, I mean, I imagine having a kid is like the toughest thing in the world and the constant worry about their health and their education and the guilt, everything. Yeah. The guilt, everything. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, I imagine you doing your job, you know, nights away from yes. home, all yeah. these things that come with that.
1: So it would have to be a decision to embrace the silly. Yeah, because you get yourself stuck into this uh, system of of um, uh, of a regime of the house of uh, uh, schedules and how things go. Because it's easier from the parents' point of view if you just go right at this time we're doing this. This time we're doing this. Get it done. Come on. Why haven't you brushed your teeth? Get your clothes on. Why wouldn't you get out of the house? And it, like it, I got really stuck in that for quite some time. And I, r- one of the changes I've made recently is as soon as the boys are up. I just get up. I spent ages trying to get them to go back to sleep for an extra 10, 15 minutes. All that did is raise tension. By the time they won, I was angry. I was up and we'd spend the morning yelling at each other. And it was now, it's usually the usually the little fella that'll wake me up because I'm I'm in his bedroom at the moment because my wife is pregnant. We're having another one because why not? The world's burning, fuck it. Let's have heaps. So, and we're pumped and excited. <laughs> I am. I'm genuinely excited.
0: World's burning. Might as well have heaps. At least we won't leave the other two by themselves. That's right. They can form some little mini militia.
1: That's right. It'll be Lord of the Flies somewhere in central Queensland. My brother owns a farm. They can go and live on the mountain as the waters rise. But so the little fella, he he wakes up um, and I'm, I'm on a mattress in his room and climbs into bed with me. And then, you know, somewhere between quarter to six and quarter past six, it's like his energy levels are up. And I just get up and it's so much better because I'm like, well, I've just resigned right. to it. Okay, cool. And then if, if silliness needs to happen, if we need to do a little dance, we've got to have a little wrestle on the ground. If both of them will disappear for a minute and they'll both come out in tutus, a two-year-old and an eight-year-old. just walk. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's what's happening. Yeah. Like, I'm at the stage now, it's, it's a bit embarrassing I don't have a tutu. Like, I should be getting, all right, come on, get involved.
0: I mean, really, you do need a tutu just so that when they walk in thinking they're really funny in their tutus, <laughs> yeah. you're already there in a tutu? <laughs> That's
1: what I should do, yeah. is just wake them up. Yeah.
0: Already dressed in a tutu. What? Yeah. Oh, it's fine if you guys You know, guys ready? But...
1: <laughs> <laughs> the day starts now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that idea that you said, like, you know, that idea for that extra 15 minutes, you know, You, you would then wake up angry and that's how you've set the agenda. It is, it's such a small shift in mindset, but
1: with such huge results, such huge results. And it's really, I, I, realize, and it's a hard thing to realize, but it's, it's my mood that's most effective on the house. Um, because I'm, I'm big, I'm loud, uh, I'm, I'm the alpha and so when i'm cranky and angry the whole house is cranky and angry when i'm calm and reserved and when i'm um quieter, the others have a chance to sort of be bigger and louder and and usually sillier and it's kind of it's that i don't know if you've seen there's like a meme of a of a pack of wolves um that are all, all walking and they, and they they talk about all the different wolves and their and their place in the wolf pack oh, okay and it talks about um, the older and weaker ones are at the front. Uh, and then just behind them, the second, uh, the, sorry, the first strongest group are there in case there's a, an attack from the front. The ol- the older ones are there to set the pace. Okay. And then the oh, strong- so everybody doesn't leave the older ones behind. Right, and then the strong okay. group is behind them in case there's an attack from the front so they can attack. Then the young ones, the mums and the, the babies are in the middle. Then the second strongest group is in the back in case there's an attack from the back. And then right up the back is the leader who leads from Behind, and, and I'm uh, it's slightly different in my house because I'm so not the leader. You're basically
0: raising your children like wolves, is what you're
1: yeah. saying. <laughs> Just let them outside, yeah. figure it my out, idiot. <laughs> but, but Hannah. You're my, wolves
0: now, guys. <laughs> wolves in tutus.
1: Yeah. Uh, Hannah and uh, myself, my partner, and I, uh, we are leaders together. It's a unified front. We remind both children of that all the time if they try and pitch us against each other. Um, but I, both of us try as best we can to lead from behind with the kids just let them go you know um uh, you, you don't uh, no structured play just child led play is a, is a big thing in our house there's there's no what does that mean because as a person who's not a play for the parent. sake of play it's just play for the sake of play. So it's um, – in fact, Lego just did a study on it and found out that it's absolutely more effective for a child to um, have child-led play than, say, early uh, literacy or uh, early maths uh, oh, before man. the age of eight. But Lego would say that, wouldn't Lego, they? <laughs> well, I mean, Lego
0: would say they're that. They're a major corporation who have a lot in the unstructured play <laughs> yeah. market. So
1: Well, it, uh, Joseph Steiner would also <laughs> say the same thing. From um, Well, again, he's got schools to follow. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like, You've got to follow uh, the money, mate. <laughs>
0: That's right. And do they see you coming? Anyway. Can I ask you about um, devices? What is yep. your... Because this is a thing I'm thinking about a lot recently, yep. which is uh, the retraining of the brain through the use of technology. Yep. And like, just personally. So I've recently, um, uh, probably three weeks now, I reckon it is, taken Facebook and Twitter off my phone. Right. I still have them, yeah. right, but I need to sit down at a computer to yes. use either of them. Yep. I can't just check them on my phone. I can't just, and in the three weeks that I have, uh, done that, my powers of concentration Mm. have bounced back in a way that I didn't even know how bad it had got until they've bounced back to what they are now, because you gradually, I watched the other day, like a game of football and I watched the whole game of football and at the end, so didn't check my phone, didn't, you know, any of those sort of things. And at the end, felt happy and relaxed. I haven't watched something and felt happy and relaxed at the end. Normally you feel as stressed as you did when you started because you've been doing a million other things at the same time. And it was, it was like a revelation. Yeah. I actually, like, I was like,
1: oh, this is, oh yeah, that's right. You engaged in the thing yeah.
0: that's there for the purpose that it's there for. I had a physical it. reaction where yeah. I, I felt about 15 minutes in, my body was like, oh. Is this all we have to do? Yeah, and you right. just felt it go into that relaxed mode, and, and it was absolutely amazing. But I, it must be a challenge with children to, you know, have an attitude to how much you allow technology into their worlds because they're going to grow up in a world that is going to be dominated by technology. You right. can't raise them without it. Mm. And often, I imagine as a parent, technology can be a valuable tool for being able to do the other things that you need to do in your
1: life. But what is your, what is your attitude to technology? So we're, we're currently in a, in a sort of changing of the guard on on this because of my eldest child's age, um, as I said, turning nine and it's a child from my previous marriage as well. So it's only half the time he's in the house. Um, I I've done a similar thing to you in the past at the start of last year, I bought a new old Nokia 3310. Oh, a burner. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so I bought a, a burner. I look yeah. so dodgy with it as well. And I, and I did that for four months. Um, I had that, it just got to the end where my job became too hard. Because I'll be out and about getting phone calls yeah. and people going, why haven't you responded to that email? So, like, because I'm, I'm on a, a burner, out. mate. Because <laughs> I'm out on a deal. Like a
0: character from The Wire. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I've been conscious trying to get off it and that was th- that was to engage with my kids. And now I'm really conscious of screen time uh, on what they uh, engage in. And there's very different needs for the two-year-old than there is for the almost nine-year-old. Uh, and I'm conscious that I don't want him to be behind Um, and also not just do the easy option of go to your room and get on the phone. So he doesn't have a phone. Um, I'm sure there's parents out there that have kids on phones at that age. No judgment here. Um, we have TV free Mondays. Um, and then every other day we just try to avoid the subject. Um, but if it's asked for, it's like, yeah, sure. You can go and watch TV. Um, he's at a tutor at the moment who asked me to download an app. Uh, that's a spelling app. I'm like, well, he doesn't have a device. So now it's. Like, oh, no, we need the device for the tutor. And then once you have the device, so I've got an old phone that we were just trying to fire up last night. Well, then he needs to download the game for his Beyblade thing, which is a spinning top game. And it, it's a really slippery slope of all of a sudden kids are on their own in the room with a device that's connected to the entire world and anything that they want to see. And not, not to mention the effects that the screens have on um, their neurological development. Which is a huge impact. And if you want to look at the, the owners of all the major tech companies in the world, don't let their kids have screens. Yeah. So, I
0: mean, it's a pretty good education, isn't it? Yeah. When you look at all these people who essentially came up with this technology in the first place, and they're like, oh, no, I wouldn't let my kids anywhere near yeah, it. No, what are you talking about? No way.
1: crazy. It's like crack.
0: Yeah. No chance. It's like the guy who runs Coca Cola going, Mate, I wouldn't let my
1: kids drink this shit. It's <laughs> you terrible. Nuts? Have you ever put a coin in it, mate? I, I invented <laughs> it to clean the concrete. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, mate. Don't put that in you. The challenge for me, though, is I grew up in a very strict Methodist upbringing. And we had, um, right, right through my formative years, pretty much no outside pop culture influences in, in the house. We didn't have a TV. We didn't listen to um, commercial music. So no TV at all. Um, yeah, pretty, basically no TV mm. until I was about 13. And even then it was monitored for how much we were going to watch and we didn't really watch much of it, but there was four of us as siblings. So there was stuff to do. There was brothers to beat up. It was, it was fine. We. And I am always, but
0: I am interested in that because there is that school of thought where, and look, we've had some of this conversation ourselves previously, but this is for the sake of the audience listening yep. to the podcast as well, is, uh, when you go from, like, you know, sometimes, for example, the kids who were never allowed to eat junk food at school, when they go to uni or you're yeah, out of school, suddenly become the people who only shop at 7-Eleven, you know? Right. Like, you know, yep. you go from one, if you have not been able to have it at all, you become the you person the who, you know, the minute mm. that you're able to make your own choices, you go the other way. So what was that like for you when you went from, you know, living in a world without Those sort of, you know,
1: influences to a world where you could make your own choices a bit more. I didn't really, I didn't go full Mormon off piste. Mm. You know, the, the Mormons get a year away. Yeah. Uh, and and they get given no guidance on that year away, and I think for good purpose, yeah. so that they go away and they they spend a year of um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's called
0: something cool too, isn't it? What's it called? Yeah, rum I rum that. rum.
1: Is it called? Is yeah, one, no yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Called? You're, rum. You're close to that too. It rum, is something. Rum shaker. No. R- rum sh- rum <laughs> It's called, It's it's got a cool name. Whatever it's called. Yeah. And I think the device is there uh, so that the, the the young Mormon kids coming of age go out. They they get completely wiped out. Um, they don't know how to deal with that and they go running back Mm -hmm. retreating. Um, I didn't, I didn't really do that. Uh, I was sort of already at a pretty young age at 14 I started smoking weed and I was drinking and I didn't really do any, anything else other than that until I was in my early thirties. So I didn't really go crazy. I, I kind of spent five years unpacking Christianity, I was, you know, trying to move uh, into this space of why did I believe all that? Is it all real? Um, try to read as much as I could because I would read pretty much exclusively the Bible or other supporting literature for that.
0: So talk us through that because I mean, often we end up talking about religion on this podcast all the time because right. essentially the question that always get to the end, but let's get to it now because it'll inform the rest of the conversation sure. is... Uh, what do you think happens when we die?
1: So I I know what I think happens for me, and that's all I'm um, willing to talk about. I can't talk to what's going to happen mm. for you. Uh, well, if you I did,
0: uh, like, I'd, I wouldn't have to have any more guests, though. <laughs> <laughs> I ask everybody the <laughs> yeah, question, <right>. Harley. They, <laughs> all have, they all have their own answer. It's It'd great. be funny if you came on and went, well, I was listening, to the, is. I was listening to the Andy Lee episode, and I think <laughs> he actually got it wrong. I know what's going to happen to him, definitely. <laughs>
1: So,, uh, the reason I'm saying that is because I grew up for you know twenty to twenty two years knowing exactly what happened or, the, or, or yes. so I thought. So you grew up in a household where so explain to people my dad is uh, was uh, an ordained reverend of the Wesleyan Methodist faction of Christianity in Australia, and so grew up just with it as a given. it was christianity was a given and and then I was quite active and committed to it. What I think now happens is that uh, when I die i um, either I'm burnt or I hopefully I'm not put into the ground. I think it's a ridiculous place to put human bodies and make your loved ones go to a cemetery to remember you when you never went there once. But anyway, uh, I hope I'm burnt and scattered somewhere or used for scientific research, and that's the end. That's it. There is no more. The only way I will live on for will be for as long as the people that remember me exist on the earth, so maybe a couple of generations um I don't feel like I'm going to leave anything that profound behind that I'll be remembered for hundreds and hundreds of years in in history texts. So it's death and done.
0: I mean, okay, hypothetical situation. Mm. What would intimidate you more? If, uh, like, what you said, which is what most of us probably, you know, think is, I'll be forgotten. By the time the people who, um, you know, by the time the people who knew me directly uh, you know Go a couple of generations The memory of me Will be Pretty much gone yeah. Or It it happens the other way After you die It turns out That William Shakespeare-like Or something like that You become This like You know Incredibly well-known revered. Worldwide Revered yeah. identity And everybody's like You know what As Harley always said <laughs> You know Not everything's funny But everything can be funny
1: In Harley we trust Yeah <laughs>
0: All rise
1: for the uh, sacred Harley
0: sacrament. You rejected God and became God.
1: How about that? (laughs) Well, uh, easiest way to make a fortune is start a religion, as L. Ron Hubbard said. uh, Uh, And then everyone forgot it and let him start a religion and make a fortune. Um, He literally said it. Yeah, He literally said it and you believe it.
0: He told you he's a snake oil salesman. Fuck, I'm on board. It's like people who are upset at Donald Trump. You're like, he literally said he could shoot someone in the street and no one would care. He said it (laughs) before (laughs) the
1: election. You had the chance. (laughs) Fuck.
0: (laughs) Uh, So, uh, how does the process of when you grow up in that um, world, Mm. and I imagine you're surrounded very much in that world by other people who also you know, believe in in the same things. And I imagine in, in a lot of ways, it's probably a very comforting world to be in, right? A whole bunch of people Absolutely. who have dedicated their life to the idea of, you know, essentially kindness and- at And a they've... lot of great people. Right. And a lot of great people go to church or find religion because they want a moral guidance in a positive way. Like yes. I think it's so often we concentrate on the negatives of religion and there are Obviously plenty of negatives of organized religion, but we sometimes marginalize the people who find religion because they go, they're like, I want to be a nice person. Is there somewhere that has a good set of rules of being a nice person? This seems like a place that has a set of rules of being a nice person. And I get to like meet other people who want to be a nice person every Sunday or whatever. And you know, we have scones and it's quite nice. You know, we sing some songs and we tell each other to be nice and we shake hands and it's all pretty good, right?
1: Yeah. So there's that, that aspect of it. And because you, humans need tribe. Yeah. Humans, we, I, I think we're so lost without tribe, mm-hmm. without some sort of group, club, gang to to connect ourselves with. And for a lot of people, that's what that's what church is. It's their tribe. It's their way of belonging.
0: Right. Absolutely. You know, uh, my, my nana definitely, you know, that idea of her, you know, her religious beliefs haven't changed from the fact that she can't go to church anymore. But I know that she is saddened that she can't go to church anymore. And it's not about her relationship with God that she believes in. It's about her relationship with all the other people that she saw at church. Yeah. She can still believe in God equally as much at home. Totally. Yeah. So, so when you grow up in that environment, how does the idea that perhaps your, your brain or your world, it's not exactly how you're going to eventually
1: believe, How does that process start? Uh, I guess we can go really deep here. The the process kind of started, from my memory, as early as 12 um, was the first time I'd asked my dad to leave his job um, because I didn't like his job because his job was all-encompassing. And I've described it in the past. It's like on on a micro uh, society level, we we were within our little micro culture, um, subculture uh, we were the royal family, mm. and so everyone within that little group knew everything that was going on uh, with all of us. And um, we were we were under a, a much more intense microscope, I felt anyway, than than other people because you're the preacher's son, so you should know better. The amount of times that that was said to me. Then, when I was 19. Um, I, you know, I'd done sermons uh, in church. I was a youth leader. I'd been on youth camps. Um, starting to live a proper double life, though. So I was church, also pubs on the weekend, and. Um, and I was involved in a, in a church that there's no drinking. It's complete abstinence. So there was a double life sort of happening. And then I was at, um, I don't know if you remember this, the Livid Festival in Brisbane. I do. Yeah, a great festival. Do you remember which year it was? 1999. Who was playing in 99? I was in a mosh pit for um, uh, The Offspring with a headlining act Is that right? in 1999. The offspring. And I wasn't necessarily uh, a fan of The Offspring. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the best thing that happened that day was the mosh pit for She Had, Um, who just one of the roughest mosh pits uh, I'd been in and, and a great New Zealand band. Um, but anyway, was they the eventually
0: f- had to change their name when they went to the U S to pacify. Exactly. Because, uh, <laughs> it was around the time of, I think they hit the U S around nine yeah. 11 and, uh,
1: people decided that she had sounded too much like G. That's exactly <laughs> right. So they changed it to pacify, yeah. to pacify the Americans, but it just really didn't work. For they them. were a good
0: band though. They, they, cha- a they, great they band. They've
1: changed back to she had. Yes, in fact, I did they been doing some shows in the last couple of years.
0: Uh, I thought I always thought the livid was the best
1: Australian festival until they went national. Yes. And they, they killed it. it. Absolutely yeah. killed it. Uh, It was great pride in Brisbane that we had something like Livid. Anyway, I was in the mosh pit. It was great fun. Uh, They put on a full show, The Offspring. They had, you know, the fire hoses out there and fat dudes wearing G-strings with elephant trunks and all sorts of madness and nonsense. At the end, there was quite a crush in the mosh pit. And I got um, jagged with a needle uh, in my right side, sort of near my right kidney. I should say I got jagged with a very sharp spike object, but there was such a crush of people. I don't know if you've been in a mosh pit and how crushed you. You can't look around and move. Um, but I, I knew I'd been hurt. And then um, so we sort of moved out when we went to a pub. And, um, and then in the morning, there was this puncture mark. I'd sort of forgotten about it. I, I, was, I was pretty full by the time that that happened. But there was a puncture mark and infection sort of marks around that puncture. And so I went off to the doctors. And then he said to me, Okay, well, you know, it's highly unlikely that's anything, but we just need to go through um, the the appropriate tests. And I went, "Tests for what?" He said, "Well, for Hep C and for HIV and for and what was like, Pardon, pardon me. At that stage, I'm a virgin, committed, non-drug-taking Christian, and I then someone says to me, "You've got to be tested for um, AIDS and, and Hep C and all this other," and you've got to wait three months for the mm-hmm. for that. And so, in that three-month period of time, I really had to examine my faith and got immediately very angry at the God that I believed in because I felt like I'd been very committed to him. Then, then started to look at what my sins, why am I being punished in this, this way? And as I'm trying to, you know, put these thoughts together in my head, you're going, well, hold on, wait a minute. As if there's one person that's governing that decision of whoever put that um, sharp object in in your side. And by the end of the three months, um, I just got to the point where, oh, I don't, I think maybe this is all complete bullshit. Uh, and then I, I would obviously got the test done and I was fine. And, and by the way, when I look back now, I think what happened in that mosh pit was as the crush happened, um, probably a small female, was very scared for her life, and rightly so, with massive dudes. I'm six foot four, all crushing around. She probably had a brooch or something um, on her jacket, took it off, and was just trying to get some space and poking people with (laughs) this pin, uh, and that's probably all it was. Um, And then from 19 to about 22, uh, I did some really serious sort of soul-searching and unpacking and thinking, uh, and then at 22 lost my virginity and went, ha-ha, it's all fucking bullshit. I didn't go to hell. What is this? Sex will set you free. (laughs) A lot of Christians needed a good route is what I'm saying. That's my philosophy. Just get a good route. You'll be fine. <laughs> what I love the
0: most is now James Fosdike will definitely do a picture with that <laughs> slogan underneath it. Um, I love that. Just a quick detour before we get back to talking about this. Um, I uh, loved that festival very much and I, one of the great thrills of my life. It's always the weirdest moments that you look back on and, you know, the things that you look back on and go, that was just an amazing moment of doing what it is that I do, um, are never the things that other people would think. Yes. Right? Yeah. That's, you know, people are going, oh, I must have been great to do that or meet this person or whatever. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I had I, I barely remembered that I did that. Whereas there's other things that I remember
1: so fondly. And so I played livid. Yes, you would have because you were on Triple J. I was. And I saw, I didn't see you there, but I saw American Russo. American Rosso. Rosso. Okay. So uh, either the year before or the year after. In can't fact, remember which. that would be my first stand up yeah. that I ever saw a lot. So yes. I can't
0: remember if it was the year after American Rosso or the year before American Rosso. I guess timeline-wise, anyway, well, who, who cares? Sure. Doesn't matter. Around the end of the 90s. Yes. Yeah. So um, Evan Dando, uh, who used to be in a band called The Lemonheads, oh, yeah. uh, who were one of my favourite bands when I was sort of yeah growing up, uh, was playing the same stage as me. Sick. And uh, he was doing two sets. Or well, I was doing two sets. Oh, I was doing two sets It was because it was stand-up. They wanted rough. you to do two sets. Uh, but At a it... music
1: festival, rough.
0: Yeah. Well, as it turns out, because I was on Triple J yeah. and, you know, It was the right, it was a good demo for me. Yeah.
1: yeah. Everybody there were kind of Triple J fans, so
0: it wasn't a hard gig, and it was on a music stage, and it was one of the great thrills of my life where I was suddenly like, oh, something's going on here, where I had this full, like, there was probably like 2,000 people to watch me, like, you know, do my set. Standing as well. Standing. Rock and roll. Yeah. And then um, Evan Dando got about (laughs) 1,000. (laughs) <laughs> and then and th- then they all came back for me again. Sick. And I just, the whole time was like, I bet this guy from the Lemonheads is going, who the fuck is this thing? And, but also the other thing I remember really distinctly was everybody must've got the same rider. So every band must've got the same. So there was like, you know, probably 48 beers and like yep. a bottle of vodka or whatever was like the standard rider. And so I, it was just me. So I got that beers writer, a bottle of rider, but twice. Because they went and refreshed Excellent. it for the second set. Excellent. So I spent the rest of the day just smuggling out alcohol to all my friends who were at the festival. Like, you know, it so was, good. it was one of the best days of my life.
1: Perfect. Yeah.
0: Um, all right. So you, around 22, you, you kind of, now it's a whole new world. Yeah. How does the rest of your, and again, I, 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 I am very aware on this podcast that I really, I ask you to speak for you and not for other people, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, uh, but the question I want to ask and answer it however you want, but well, I want to know how the other people in your life, particularly your family and stuff, mm-hmm. when they're in that world, are dealing with the fact that you're moving out of that world. So I was as much as you're comfortable to. Yeah, talk no, about.
1: I, I, I'd, I'd go to all the, the detail uh, from my own um, experience and, and perspective. I was the first in the family. So there's there's six of us: mum, dad, and four siblings. I was the first in that immediate family to start moving out of it. At around the same time, there was um, there was a little bit of uh, unhappiness within the, ch- the congregation for my old man uh, and the way that he was uh, leading them and preaching and what he was talking about. And quite specifically, they were frustrated that he was preaching too much about grace and love. Mm-hmm. Clearly what's wrong with the Christian yep. faith. And not enough about fire and brimstone. Okay. And that was what they wanted in yep. their club.
0: They wanted a bit of fire and brimstone and he was bringing grace and love.
1: They want to know yep. why they're going to heaven. Yeah. And why others are going going to hell? Because it makes them feel good. Yeah. Whereas what my old man was bringing to the table was. Uh, not not very much from the scriptures in terms of not reading the scripture but talking uh in the essence of the Jesus story right. in you you're meant to treat humanity that, yeah. better.
0: They wanted a bit more old testament and he was preaching yeah. a little a little bit more new totally, testament. Totally. Yeah.
1: He he was he was going off the reservation. Mm. And um so in that,
0: the spirit of the son of god yeah, <laughs> like totally. he was living the life that you know Jesus yeah. from the yeah. bible yeah. would have wanted you to
1: live rather than
0: Yeah. Totally. Yeah.
1: So, and, and he was a shit stirrer as well. Um, and it was great. Much like like Jesus. Much like Jesus. And you know, to give context to my old man, he's the son of a missionary who was the daughter of a preacher. It's, it's multi-generational sort of thing. And so uh, he, he got into this organization when he was young and, um, and maybe misguided. And as his children were growing and exploring and questioning, he started to explore and question. He had, um. Uh, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags in his office. Um, he felt a, a real great affinity, uh, with the indigenous population and, um, a great sadness with the way that they were treated. And so he had that, he always had the indigenous flag on his, on his jacket lapel, rubbed people up the wrong way. You, you think middle Australia, um, conservative Christians, white, It's super white. Uh, and one day he was told by somebody, a senior in the church that he shouldn't have those flags hanging in his office. And he was like, and why is that? And they said, well, because they're pagan religions. Um, They're not. They're they're symbols of a nation. But anyway. So he was like, okay, fine. I'll take them down. And the next Sunday in church, they were hanging either side of the cross. (laughs) (laughs) Now, obviously, he's really fucking pissing people off. So they tried to get him out um, and get him sacked. Uh, the, 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 the particular situation in that organization was a democratic one. You had to add a vote of the members. They went to a vote, they voted him back in. Um, but then I think by that stage he would just had it. And so at, when I was 22, 2002, the whole family left. We all, we all sort of moved on. And, um, I would say I'm the only person willing to say the word atheist to describe myself but everybody else has got their own journey or all of my, I'd say two of my siblings would probably class themselves as agnostic. I did manage to get my old man to tick no religion on the census. Explaining that it doesn't matter what your belief system is, what you think is, is the story behind earth and the creator and all of that. If you tick a religion on the census, Lyle Shelton takes that number. He takes you as a number and he lobbies government on your behalf Regardless of your faith, is that what you want? you want people like that using your number? So it's
0: important that uh, what you're saying there, because even for the people who think it's really funny to put like Jedi or right. whatever yep. as your religion, yeah, uh, people like Elias Shelton from the yes. ACL will then use those uh, statistics to you know, lobby against same-sex marriage, or he'll yes. use those statistics to lobby against abortion and Absolutely. these sort of things. Yep. So yes, it, th- that's a that's a really good point to make, and one that probably isn't made. Enough, to and, be
1: honest. The last census, we were up almost to 30% tick to no religion in this country, which is a huge uh, portion of this country. And I refute the idea that we're a Christian nation. We're a secular nation. Um, well, we have been for a very
0: long time. In yep. fact, there is an argument that I've heard a lot that the most religious countries are often the, the places that are sort of the poorest, the least fortunate. It's not a 100% the case. There no. are exceptions to the rule. Yep. But, you know, the idea being that those – who need to believe there's a better life than the one that they are getting to live are yes. the ones who are most susceptible to buying into that idea. Whereas like when you're born in Australia, you're like, well, it's heaven good. would have to be pretty good to be better than <laughs> here, mate. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Have you ever been to
1: Broome? It's <laughs> fucking great. Where now, mate? <laughs> yeah, mate. It's like Hinduism. Hinduism, they 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 sell the idea of poverty th- through the concept of reincarnation. It's just your turn now. Yeah when you die, you'll come back. It'll be better. Yeah, don't don't get me about. wrong. Oh yeah. Oh, it's been, it's going to be great. It's going to be great.
0: Just deal with this now. It's okay. Yeah. The fact that you're going to be poor and poor forever. Yeah. That's, that's okay. You wait until you come back as a tiger. But I understand that. I understand. And and it's why, particularly when somebody's lost someone or, you know, if people want to believe in the comfort that they'll one day be reunited with, someone else or absolutely. these sort of things and who am i to you know step in the way of that and particularly when i don't know either
1: I, absolutely i don't know mm. even to the to the religion of hinduism how the hell do i know if that's right or yeah all? maybe it's I'm right it w- could be
0: maybe they'll be laughing at you those <laughs> poor people who'll yeah, be exactly. richer than excellence yeah
1: when i come back yeah. as some sort
0: of grub yeah you idiot <laughs> this was right this was the right one i fucked it yeah <laughs> and we heard that podcast right <laughs> They listen in. would yeah, yeah. be good to get the Hindus involved. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them out Mate, there, to be lot honest. Well, what it was a one point one? I mean, one they can't afford merch. A lot of them are real poor, <laughs> <Yeah>. but won't uh, like <laughs> Anyway, so uh, uh, before we go, I've got a couple of standards that I normally go to mm-hmm. on the podcast and I'd like to run them by you. Um, if you had a time machine and you had an opportunity to go back to a moment in your life and have a do-over, is there one that you would do over?
1: Ooh. Um, immediately there was a there was a list of things that sort of went off in my head, uh, but I don't think I'd do anything over. Uh, it all it all has just been what it is. You know, I could immediately go. Oh, well, I'd um, I'd leave the church earlier. You know, I, I would just I'd put my foot down about it when I was twelve. When I asked my dad to leave and say, well, "Well, then fine. If you want to stay, that's fine. But I'm making my own choices and I'm not coming." But it all informs who I am now. Um, uh, I wouldn't have met. The love of my life, who's about to give birth to my third child, um our second together, that wouldn't have happened without all of the other bullshit so no i, I wouldn't I wouldn't go back and change uh,
0: maybe,
1: I, maybe I'd go back and tell myself you know the lottery number or some shit like that, so that's <laughs> some more fucking money. <laughs> uh, what do you consider
0: to be your best strength, your greatest strength
1: uh resilience, I would say uh, which I thank my parents for. Um, that, uh, you know, I was thinking about that when you were going to ask my philosophy, it was, it was either what I said or I was going to go, Oh, she'll be right. I love that Aussie way of she'll be right. And I, and I think that's, uh, a, a really awkward way of, of talking about resilience of just going, shit's going to be hard. It absolutely will be. And, um, and I'm not done with hardship in my life. Um, but that you, you just, you get up and you keep going. And, um, that's the greatest challenge as a parent is to how to get resilience into your kid. And I'm I'm in awe of my parents for being able to do that in all four of us.
0: I, I certainly have an element of that as well. You know, dairy farmers kid, I think it probably comes a little bit from that, but is that idea of recognizing that I am completely, I, I think that if there's something that defines my life, it is the com- recognition that I'm completely unqualified for everything that I do yeah. and that everything I do is probably going to be a disaster or really, really hard, but fuck it, I might as well do it anyway. Why not? Yeah. What else, You'll be all right. am, what else am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> Might as well have a crack uh, what do you consider to
1: be your greatest weakness um, either the fear of mediocrity or the fear of success, which is exactly the same thing um, I think it i think i, I get i don 't do things because i I get fearful that it won 't be the best thing, so I used to think it was the fear of mediocrity actually, maybe it's the fear of success and what I do with that. And it it, it halters me from doing things.
0: They're both of the same arrogance. That's the the weird thing. Yes. Like, you know, the idea it's, I, I always talk about this about perfection. I used to like a long time ago now, but you know, I used to be one of those people who'd probably be like, you know, I'm a perfectionist, but the idea of perfectionism comes with such an arrogant assumption that you could ever be perfect at something. Yeah. Whereas that moment when you accept that you are not perfect at all and in fact the idea that you even judge yourself by the idea of something being perfect which is an unrealistic expectation in the first place then then you can forgive yourself and try a few more things and i think be a better person um what uh do you think that people have a misconception about you and if so what is it uh
1: i do i'm not hung up on it but uh i've spent most of my uh, career sort of battling it people hear the way i sound see, look at the way I look, uh, and make a certain judgment on, therefore you think this thing about this stuff. Um, and I, I quite often describe myself as a, as an epic ultra hippie. Um, I'm super left, uh, but I don't see the need, um, to wear linen and talk like a fuckwit to... <laughs> <laughs> Let everyone know that I think refugees yeah. uh, should have safe and free passage to this country and that equality is something that we should all uh, strive for and that um, cannabis should be legal and all of those things. I uh, believe
0: in the idea I don't have to wear the uniform. Fucking oath.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like the way I talk. I like where I grew up. Uh, and, and so I know that people think that of me and I know that it certainly in the in the comedy industry earlier on in my career and then through through a lot of it, there was a perception that I was, um, you know, a bit of a um, an alpha ochre thug from Queensland into sport, bit of a jock. Um, and then if, if people took the time to watch my stand-up and hear the stories I tell, well, I'm none of those.
0: I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's why getting you to do this show, Taboo, is the most inspired choice. Because you could get... Yeah, if I were available, yeah, you could get me do I think you'd have done do an exceptional show. job at it. Um, if if Charlie Pickering were available, yep. or one of these people who is a kind of a a person who people identify as being someone who deals with issues yes. in what they're doing. But why I respond so well to you doing this show, and why I think that you are such a good choice, is firstly, I absolutely believe that you are a super intelligent person, and I've always you know, like the conversations we've had have always been, you know, some of my favorite conversations I have with people in comedy. I find you an incredibly engaging person. I love the way you think about the world. I think we probably have a lot of very similar you Absolutely. know, perspectives on yep. things, but not always. No. And, and, you know, it'd be, there'd be no point having a conversation with somebody if you believed all the same things. But what I think the mistake we make so often in life is that if Tom Ballard was doing your show
1: there Again, I think a, you'd do a, a brilliant job, great job. But it'd just
0: be a completely different show. Yes. Yeah. And it would be made for a whole bunch of people who. Like, my favourite comedy festival show this year was Tom Bellard's show. Yeah, yeah, Tom's been on this podcast. I love Tom Bellard. Great. If if that needs to be said, it's. And I'll yeah. say it as well yeah. on record, love yeah. Tom Bellard. Uh, but, you know, like the audience who are coming to uh, Tonightly or yeah. to Tom's show are coming because they want to hear Tom say the things that they have signed up to say. Whereas an audience who coming to see your show aren't always necessarily no. coming in going, I want this to be political or I want yeah. this to be left or I want to be challenged on an assumption that I had. And so often I think your secret weapon is that you don't sell on the poster that you are going to be talking about those things. So often you are introducing ideas or concepts or thoughts or perspectives on the world in a more subtle way or a more secret way. And mm. I often think that that has more potential to slightly change someone's mindset rather than, you know, preaching to the choir, which yeah. often, you know, I feel like, you know, often, you know, even in my audiences, you know, is the case and nothing wrong with that. Some, no, sometimes it's good course, to yeah. preach to the choir, yeah. you know, Yeah, it's, yeah. Again. It's a, it's but a there idea. is also something very great about, you know, the, the package Sometimes, you know, you can sneak in that stuff and it, and you have the opportunity to expose it perhaps to a, a wider audience or an audience that did not know that that's what they were signing up for. And I think that is an absolutely great thing.
1: I am genuinely appreciative that you've seen that. Um, I do try and make that a subtle thing. I don't, I don't bang my chest about it. Um, my number one focus in everything that I do when it comes to stand-up comedy, number one is funny. That's it. If, number two, there happens to be some uh, bit of uh, a greater understanding of, of a subject matter that you didn't know, and you got that because you sat in my show and I did a joke that involved buttholes uh, and also refugees, then and you uh, have a heightened level of empathy as a result of that joke, then fucking great. But I want, I want you to laugh, is, is what I want to do.
0: Harley Breen, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Uh, the show starts on Channel 10 on... June 13. June 13. So o'clock. I think we'll be, what, tomorrow? The, do we know the dates? We'll be tomorrow night, if you're listening to this, on the day that it comes out. Um, and uh, if you're listening to it later, you can find it, of course, on Ten Play, I imagine, which is their catch-up app. Um, and uh, and then weekly. So what night of the week is it? Cause I, Thur- no good. Thursday, Thursday. Thursday night. At, straight after MasterChef oh, okay. at 9 o'clock. Yeah, okay. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a good lead-in. Nice one. Is well, there it? you go. Uh, Harley Brain, thank you so much. Mate. Thanks, Will.